All right, if you would, take your Bible and open to John chapter 11. We're going to look at four different places in the Gospel of John where uh, it talks about uh, the Apostle Thomas. On your little half, half sheet of paper that we passed out tonight, uh, on the back, I just put a couple of dates to... Uh, to be aware of, this Wednesday, we're beginning our 40 days of prayer. Uh, that will lead us up to September 12th. If you want to pick out one of those booklets, I think we have about 8 or 10 more left in those baskets on the table. If your email is in our system, we'll begin sending out those emails 5 a.m. Wednesday morning. Uh, don't get up to watch for it unless you're already up, but 5 a.m. Wednesday morning, they'll just come out every day uh, to, to your email and take us through this this time of prayer, and so we'll be doing that, but if you'd like a hard copy booklet, we've got a few more, and Gwen will print more this, this week. Wednesday night, we don't have anything planned here at the church building other than that prayer gathering back in the fellowship center at six o'clock. We'll pray as long as the Lord leads us, and then we'll uh, go home uh, at that point, or go out to eat together, whatever we do after that. Nothing will happen, we don't have anything scheduled Wednesday the 11th, that's a complete off night, Kids start school the next day on the 12th, the 11th is completely off, and then the 18th restarts our meal, our groups, everything we do on Wednesday night will start back up on, on the 18th. Um, evening service will happen next Sunday night, just like uh, this, 5 o'clock, Sunday night, August 8th. We won't do an evening service on the 15th. Because that's our big mission celebration day. We're going to have lunch as a church. Jim's got a lot of things planned that whole weekend, possibly bleeding into Sunday night. We're still working on some of the, the details with when missionaries need to get on planes and get back and things like that. But we won't do anything, and then we'll just pick right back up on the 22nd with Sunday night. So no Sunday night on the 15th because that's the big mission celebration uh, day, and then we'll go, go right on from there. So... Tonight, we are going to talk about Thomas. When you hear Thomas, poor guy, uh, you know, as the apostle got doubting stuck to him. Uh, what we're going to find about Thomas is, yeah, there were moments of doubt for sure, but he's someone we can learn from. And, and as I was reading uh, John MacArthur's book over the disciples, which is a great resource for this study we've been doing, and a, and a really good book just all the way around, but uh, he describes Thomas more as a pessimist than a doubter. And I think you do see that. I mean, those two things go hand in hand. You may be this person, or you know someone, they're not just glass half empty, but the glass is dirty, and it's not the right glass, and the glass doesn't have the right kind of water in it. And so it's one thing for the, be the glass to be empty, but when the glass is dirty and it's the wrong glass and it doesn't have the right water in it, sometimes you get people that have a little bit of a pessimistic streak to them. And uh, some of us are guilty of that with certain personality traits that go with that. But what can we learn from Thomas, who was a little bit pessimistic, about what it means to have faith in God, like we've seen about. And as we've studied these disciples, that theme of faith just stays in front of us. These guys struggled with faith. These guys struggled to believe, and yet Jesus was so faithful. And he led them to see all that it meant to be a part of the people of God. So let's start in chapter 11, verse 1. So this is John, John's Gospel, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill 
Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, I hate to break this to you, but if he just fell asleep, he's going to be okay. He will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. All right, what do we find here? Well, first we find, as we do so often in the Gospels, the disciples struggling to make sense of what Jesus is telling them. Jesus is talking about a big picture here, bigger realities. They get stuck on, Lord, you don't have enough bread. <laughs> or, Lord, we don't know the way you're going to go. Or, Lord, I thought you were talking about sleep, and now you're talking about death. This confusion that the disciples face regarding faith you find here, and it's interesting, you have a statement about faith, and who gets mentioned? Thomas gets mentioned here. Now, in the synoptic gospels, and if we ever say synoptic gospels, if we ever throw that word out there, what we mean is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels share so much material. Funny thing about those gospels, you don't get any Thomas stories in those three gospels. You get his name mentioned, but never stories about him. John, however, in his gospel, which is what, what is John's gospel all about? It's about believing that Jesus is the Son of God. A gospel so much about belief, John uses Thomas's story multiple times in his gospel to talk about this idea of belief. What else do we find about Thomas here? He's a twin. He's a twin. Now, you might have a footnote in your Bible that points out that the word here is didymus, just the Greek word for twin. So Thomas... Greek name, Didymus, meant that he was a twin. Anybody in here a twin? Oh, wow, you would think the, you know, the percentages might be in our favor that somebody in here was, was a twin. We don't, we don't know anything about Thomas's twin. We're, we're left out on this idea, but he would have brought that idea. Hopefully his twin was an optimist <laughs> since he was such a pessimist <laughs> to kind of balance them out here, but we don't know anything about Thomas's twin. However, what does Thomas say there in verse 15? Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Two things we see here with, with Thomas. One, he is incredibly loyal to Jesus. 
Why is he so worried about Jesus dying? Well, as Jesus is returning to Jerusalem, he knows the odds are stacked against him. Every time they've been around Jerusalem, they've been near to death. Now they're going back there, and not only is Lazarus dead, but Thomas in his mind says, well, we're dead too. We're going to go back with Jesus. Jesus is going to die, and you know what? We're going to die with him. Good. That's a good dedication from Thomas. He's willing to die with the Lord, but man, he's pessimistic. <laughs> There's no way out of this. No way that Lazarus is going to be raised. No way that Jesus is going to overcome death. We're with Jesus. We're with him to the end, and we're going to die. So what we define here, we find someone committed to Jesus, but someone who's pessimistic. He can't see beyond what's right in front of him. He can't see beyond the glass half empty. He can't see beyond this reality of Lazarus dying to see that what is Jesus ultimately going to do? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he himself is going to be raised from the dead, and Lazarus shows this picture that Thomas can have faith as well. So, dedicated, pessimistic. Now, go over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, famous verses, verses that you memorized from the time that you were probably in vacation Bible school and Sunday school. John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now let's stop there for a minute to make sure we understand these famous verses we've heard many times before. The way the language is used here about going to prepare a place for you, we inevitably think about Jesus going to heaven to build out these rooms that, that are going to be for us. The language, though, has much more to do with preparing a way for us to be with the Father. That what Jesus is doing is it will be through his death and resurrection that he will prepare a place for us. Not the language of building out the rooms, because sometimes we think about building a mansion in heaven or that idea. It's not that language. It's language of, I will prepare a place for you. I will prepare the way for you to go to this place, is, is the idea that's being given here. And how will he prepare the way? It's through his death and resurrection, and ultimately his ascension back to the Father. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, make possible for you to, to be there, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Let's stop there for just a second. I want you to make a connection with another place in Scripture here. If you go over, let's look, look at two verses together. Chapter 14 that you're in right now, look over at verse 23. So we're talking about abiding with the Lord. How are we able to be with the Lord? Where's, how's this able to happen? John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That language of abiding, of, of Jesus preparing a home and a place is reflected here where he says that he will come and be with them. Here's the other connection we want to make is if you go back to Mark, so hold your place there in John. Go back to Mark chapter 3. 
Oh, Mark chapter 1, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 1. I want you to see an interesting connection that can get lost in John's gospel when he's talking about Jesus preparing a way to be with the Father. What's, what's he doing? Why is he using this language together? Well, here's the connection. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The place in scripture where you find prepare and way together is used in this prophecy about the coming of we know will be John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, who will then prepare the way for us to be with the Lord. So you have this prophecy from Isaiah of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Messiah, who will then come and prepare the way for ultimately us to abide with the Father forever in his presence in heaven. So you go back to John chapter 14, if you still have your place there, and we're thinking about the word prepare and the word way being used together, that Jesus is preparing the way, which is why it's so amazing that Thomas says there, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Again, pessimistic, doubting, unsure. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How are we going to get to the Father the Father has prepared the way. He has made possible through his Son that we can be with him forever. And then he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now you're going to find even in the following verses, the disciples struggling. Philip struggles with this, unable to understand this concept. But what you find is Thomas having trouble getting past this base reality to see that God has already made a way. What you find in Thomas at this point is something I want us to reflect on for just a second. And, and I think Phyllis's uh, testimony earlier, and, and Alan's as well, uh, alluded to this idea. Here's the idea. When we look at life in front of us, it's often hard for us to see beyond the end of our arm. You know, we, we look at life and we're looking for a path forward and we just don't see it because we can only see as far as our physical eyes will take us. Lord, I don't see how you're gonna get us out of this situation. I don't see how I'm gonna get past this situation that I'm facing right now. I don't see how we're gonna pass this circumstance in front of us. And in those moments, it's not our physical eyesight that the problem is it. It's our faith in the Lord to make a way. It's our faith in the Lord to say, you can only see this far, but if you could back up and see what I see, my word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. I have a path laid out before you, but you have to believe me. You have to trust me. And, and you may have had this idea on that, that verse from the Psalms about God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, but it's not always a floodlight 
to our path. <laughs> uh, God's word says, step here, take the next step, and then I will help you take the next step, and I'll help you take the next step. And that's hard to do when you can't see very far down the road. And it seems like down the road takes on a completely different meeting with, with Alan's story where you literally can't get down the road because, because you're stuck. It seems like in those situations when you just feel overwhelmed, taking the next step can be the hardest thing. You feel overwhelmed, and some people, when they get overwhelmed, fight. <laughs> Other people, when they get overwhelmed, freeze. And you get frozen in that moment of unbelief, and you're like, Lord, how am I ever going to take the next step? How am I ever going to get out of this situation? And Jesus is saying again and again and again, I've prepared the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just trust in me. I'll take you that next step. John chapter 20. Let's look at John chapter 20. This is where poor Thomas gets his name. <laughs> he gets his doubting Thomas name here in, in John 20. And let's just be honest with ourselves. If any of us were in the situation that Thomas was in, we too would be doubting. We, we all find ourselves in these moments of doubt. John chapter 20. Let's start in verse 19 so you can find out what Thomas missed out on. John chapter 20 verse 19 on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they have forgiven them. If you will hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Quick pause there. Why is Thomas not with them? We're not told. So any answer we give here, we have to admit, is going a little beyond what Scripture provides us. My guess, if I was just giving a guess of why Thomas is not with them, Remember what we know about Thomas. He's loyal and dedicated to Jesus, but he's also very pessimistic. And at this point, Thomas is saying, guys, I didn't sign up to be with you. I signed up to be with Jesus. I, I didn't sign up to be around you guys. I only wanted to be with Jesus. Jesus isn't here, so why is he going to stick around the other disciples? His pessimism is taking over again, and the fact that his dedication is to Jesus, not the other disciples. You kind of get that feeling that that's how Thomas would respond to this type of situation. However, verse 25, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it by my, in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What a beautiful promise Jesus is giving to us, that we are among those who have not seen and yet believe. Why? Partly because of the example of Thomas. It's Thomas's doubt here 
that leads to this ultimate expression of worship. That he's doubted, he's struggled, and yet here's this exclamation of worship, my Lord and my God. Sometimes people will say in scripture that Jesus is never referred to as God. Here's a reference perfectly here. Some people will be so crass as to say that Thomas is uh, using my God in like an OMG, oh my God sort of way. Well, first off, no Jewish person is ever going to speak that way in, in this time frame. And two, it just doesn't make sense of the language. He is proclaiming my Lord and my God. He is making a declaration of worship here that, that's frankly incredible. Chapter 21, one other place that you see Thomas referenced. Chapter 21 of John, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. I feel bad for the other two guys that didn't get named here. But uh, uh, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred years, a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here's Thomas again, finding himself in this situation where Jesus is so merciful and gracious and kind to reveal his power to them and to have breakfast together, to have this shared meal. When's the last time in John that we saw Jesus sharing a meal with his disciples before this? He's there in the upper room. Here you find him after his resurrection sharing a meal again with these disciples. The way he comes to them in their time of doubt and yet cares for them, ministers to them, and then prepares to send them out. Now we know that Thomas gains traction at this point because in Acts chapter 1, he's with the disciples in the upper room at the time of Pentecost. Also, what I love about Thomas's story is we have some pretty good early church information that says Thomas is the one who takes the gospel to India. That Thomas is used in taking the gospel there to the people of the subcontinent of South Asia or India. So you think about ministry to India, and a lot of times that's connected to Thomas. The imagery that's used around Thomas is often the imagery of the spear because early church history says that Thomas died by being speared through for the faith. What's interesting about that imagery, whether it's legendary or not, 
what did Thomas see and experience that led to his faith? The spear that was placed in the side of Jesus. He wanted to see that area where Jesus was speared in the side and it led to his faith. And then at the end of his life, legend has it, some good history, that he himself was speared. Again, how much can we know that that's true? It's a really neat connection, though, to think about Thomas's faith that led him to India, ultimately to be speared after he saw the area where Jesus was speared as well. All right, let's take all of that and wrap it up in this way. What do we do with doubt and pessimism? How do we handle these realities of the Christian life? So let's take a minute here just to share. What leads people to be pessimistic? And this is not a rhetorical question. This is your chance at 540 or 542 or whatever to give me a couple of ideas. What leads people to be pessimistic? Lack of trust. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Especially if you've been burned before and trust has been broken. That can make you really pessimistic and cynical. Yeah. Yeah, Thomas struggles to trust the other disciples. It's not just that he struggles to trust Jesus or, or the Lord, but he can't trust what he hears from the other disciples. Uh, pessimistic people have often had their trust broken. And, uh, and yeah, that does, that's a good point. What do, let's turn it around to doubting. When you think about the Christian faith and, and the, the struggles with doubt, what do people doubt? So not why do we doubt, but what do people doubt? tend to struggle with doubting. Yes, we doubt the return of the Lord. Uh, that starts in the New Testament, <laughs> that people struggle with uh, the return of the Lord, doubting that he's, is he going to come back? It's been, what, 2,000 years and counting type of thing. That's right. Doubting the word of the Lord begins in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? We doubt, we doubt God's word, and is he, is he going to do what he said? Uh, doubt the return of the Lord. What else do people doubt? Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. We doubt whether the Lord would actually use us. Uh, so, God, you, might, you can do anything, but would you do that through us? That's a great point. Some verses that we didn't get all the way to in John 14 refer exactly to that. Greater things that I have done, you will do as the Holy Spirit comes. So, What else do we doubt? Anybody ever doubted their personal salvation? Or whether that's you can lose your salvation? Or I, I know a lot of people struggle with that. Doubts about, about salvation. Um, what do you do with doubt? How do you, how do you handle doubt? And I've I feel like when you think about some of these questions related to doubt, as churches, we haven't always done particularly well with doubt. Like if anyone offers questions or uncertainty or pessimism or doubt, it, if we're not careful, we close that down too quickly and say, no, 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 we don't ask those questions around here. No, you can't, you can't think those things. You can't have those doubts. But what does that do? That just drives people even further away so when you look at Scripture, I, I find kind of three things that are helpful when we're dealing with doubt. And I've tried to put these on, on your notes there. Well, first off, let's make the point here. I, I need to make the distinction. There's a difference between destructive 
toxic doubt, uh, which doesn't desire the truth, <laughs> doesn't desire to grow, doesn't desire to learn. This, is, this hardly counts as doubt anymore. This just becomes a toxic way of thinking and living versus very transparent, honest doubt. I'm struggling with this pastor, or I'm struggling with this friend. I'm struggling with this mom and dad, grandpa and grandma. I'm really struggling with this doubt. Can you help me? That's very different than a kind of doubt that's turned into toxic cynicism. So we want to make that distinction. Three things. Number one, prayer. Does our doubt draw us toward God or away from him? Does our doubt draw us toward God? God, I need you in this time. Or does our doubt cause us to turn away from the Lord and go a different direction? Our hope is that in prayer, people are drawn to the Lord, that they can take their doubt to God and know that he's not going to push them away. Now, if someone says, I can't take my doubt to God, he, he would turn from me. What do you have? You have the example of Thomas. <laughs> Say, let me show you how God treated someone who struggled with doubt and pessimism. Jesus drew near to Thomas. He was kind to him in his moment of weakness, his, his moment of struggle. So, number one, prayer. Take your doubts to the Lord. Number two, worship. On the back of your notes, look at these two verses and the way that they connect. Two places in Matthew's gospel, we find doubt referred to in Matthew's gospel. If you look on the back of that half sheet of paper, Matthew chapter 28, which is famous for the Great Commission being sent out, go and make disciples. Just before that, we find that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Even to the very end, to this moment of the Great Commission, we find doubt. And maybe... I hadn't thought about this until Doug mentioned this, but maybe their doubt is, will the Lord use me at this point? Maybe their doubt is, we've struggled so much to this point, and now Jesus is preparing to send them out. They're doubting whether or not they're going to be used in, in the things of the Lord. They're doubting whether all that Jesus has promised is going to come true. Now, here's the other place you find doubt mentioned in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, famous story, Peter walking on the water there with Jesus as Peter's going down, as he begins to see the waves, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What stands out from those verses is the two times in Matthew's gospel that doubt is mentioned, it's mentioned in a context of worship, <laughs> that even in the midst of our doubts, we can be drawn to worship the Lord, to trust him. So again, what do you do if you have someone who's struggling with doubt? Continue to draw them to worship the Lord. Let me make sure I get my, every time I try to say this, I say the words out, out, of, uh, out of order, but the idea is that you don't have to know everything about God to truly worship him as God. The idea meaning we don't have to have exhaustive knowledge of a subject to know something truly about that subject. Used in reference to God, we don't have to know everything about God 
in order to truly and authentically worship him as God. Sometimes people get hung up because not all of their questions have been answered. Do you know someone who has a lot of questions about the Bible that still remain unanswered? Me. (laughs) If we had to have everything answered in order to worship, that says more about us than it does about God. Sometimes what we need to encourage people in is this idea that comes from the early church of faith-seeking understanding. Sometimes in order to have greater understanding, we have to begin with faith. And with that faith comes then a desire to have greater understanding. If we have to understand everything in order to believe, we're all in trouble, right? And, and in fact, we know that that's not, that's not faith. And so if you know people who are struggling with doubt, sometimes what you have to find out is, is this intellectual doubt wrapped around a few questions Or is this kind of a deeper emotional doubt that I really don't want to give my life over to the Lord? Because sometimes people say, I have all these doubts, I have all these doubts. What that really comes back to is I don't want to trust my life to the Lord. And so don't miss how even in times of doubt we can be drawn to worship and say, God, I don't understand everything, but I trust you and I need you. And I believe as I trust you, you're going to lead me into greater understanding. Prayer, worship, and finally, the church. Back of your notes, many of you could quote these and you wouldn't even need the the words, but Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without doubting, for he who promised is faithful. How do we do this? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In its best expression, the church should be the safest, best place for someone to run when they have doubts. In our worst moments, we take people who are doubting and we push them away and say, no, you can't have those questions around here, you can't struggle with those things. But if we're functioning in the way that God has created us to function, Someone struggling with doubt should want to run toward the church because they know there they're going to find help and encouragement and be focused back on Jesus. So what do we do tonight? If you're pessimistic, if you're a little bit of a glass half empty type of person, be drawn to prayer, be drawn to worship, be drawn to the church. Know that you can trust the Lord and he's going to lead you forward. If you're the optimist in here, just help the rest of us out, and we'll be, we'll be thankful for that. So, all right, let's pray together. Father, many of us, many of us have struggled with doubt over the years. And in our doubts, it's easy to get isolated away from the church, or we think things in our head, and we would be embarrassed to share them with others that we're struggling with doubt. God, I pray that you would remind each of us of the story of Thomas, of someone who was a little pessimistic, who struggled with doubt, and yet you were so faithful to him, and you used him in such incredible ways uh, for your kingdom. So God, help us as a church family to be a place where people are doubting whether you would work in their life, if people are doubting things that they have learned growing up in church, God, I pray that they would be drawn to prayer, that they would continue to worship you, and that our church family would be a safe place for them to ask those questions and find help in time of need. And God, as we sing this final hymn, uh, 
God, use the words of these great hymns to grow our faith even tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.